Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletaub from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Redondo Beach, California is Eric Feldman. Eric is a Senior Vice President and Managing Director for Corporate Ethics and Compliance Programs at Affiliated Monitors. Eric, thanks for the time taking to talk to us today. Thanks for having me, Adam. So we're going to talk today about something which, frankly, I didn't know about until you told me about it, and uh, really is the Benskowski memo. Uh, and as you explained, there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. So why don't we start with the misunderstanding, which is, can you start out what the memo doesn't say, since there seems to be a lot of people who think it says things that it doesn't? Sure. And, and that was my starting point with this memo as well, when I it was issued and I was starting to receive phone calls from uh, people saying, uh, I understand that the Department of Justice has said that there aren't going to be any more monitors. So what's that going to do to your monitoring business? And I had read the memo, but had not read it thoroughly at that point when it just came out. And um, I was somewhat concerned. Uh, but after reading it, it's very clear what the memo does not say is that the Department of Justice will no longer use monitors. Uh, it, it doesn't say that at all. In fact, what it does say um, is that the use of monitors is going to be uh, well thought out, um, perhaps better thought out in terms of the application of when a monitor might be appropriate to settle a particular case. Uh, and that the selection of monitors is going to be subjected to a much more uh, rigorous selection process at DOJ. So um, maybe you can, along those lines, just illuminate a bit more about how the process is going to be changed or has already started changing. Well, it's interesting. So. The um, what Benskowski says in this memo um, primarily is that DOJ is going to evaluate the cost and benefits of using a monitor in every case. That the default position is not going to be if you have a deferred prosecution agreement, we're going to subject you to a monitor. And some of the criteria associated with that are whether the underlying conduct. Uh, involved corporate books and records, because as we know, when you're dealing with manipulation of corporate books and records, it's a much more um, all-encompassing type of fraud and manipulation that involves multiple people in an organization. Therefore, it's very hard to say we had a bad actor that resulted in manipulated corporate books and records. They want to know if the misconduct was pervasive across the organization and was senior leadership involved. That might require the use of a monitor to address some of the underlying cultural uh, and ethics and compliance issues. Um, and to me, the much more significant piece of this is the question, did the company make significant investments in and improvements to the corporate compliance program and internal controls, both before the incident occurred uh, and after the incident occurred. Uh, that 
uh, emphasis on corporate compliance is what I think is different than any previous DOJ memoranda on monitors, and there have been a few. No, and it's definitely would be a change, and but on the same time, by the same token, it's it's somewhat consistent. The whole emphasis on looking at changes in the compliance program to what the antitrust division does. You know, they're famous for the fact that they are sort of a first past the post as to who gets a break in case there's a violation. First company report gets one; others don't. They don't look at the compliance program, um, but they do look at what's been done subsequently. Um, one of the things I also thought was notable, you know, after you told me about the memo and I read through it, is it asks if the improvements not just have been made to the compliance program, but they have been tested. Um, yes. How can companies go about testing their programs? Well, you know, this gets to a very interesting, um, interesting thing. It's not just testing the program, but they also are requiring that the internal controls be tested. And internal control and program testing was a very uh, important emphasis that Wei Chen put on the evaluation of corporate compliance programs when she was compliance counsel in the fraud section. And it's also reflected in the DOJ um, corporate compliance evaluation criteria. And that's requiring companies to periodically test the effectiveness of what it is they're doing. Uh, and as we know, there are so many companies that have gotten the message that they need to have certain documentation, like a code of conduct, policies and procedures, anti-corruption controls. Some put them in with good intentions, others, it becomes a paper program to satisfy regulators or law enforcement. And the difference between a paper program and one that is effective is the testing piece of it. And if you go and ask um, 100 compliance officers uh, whether their program is effective, I would say probably half of them will answer. I really don't know. I think it is. I hope it is. But I don't know if it is. And that is, I think, trying to get at, these rules are trying to get at uh, that missing piece. Uh, for example, you provide ethics and compliance training to your staff. Uh, you hope that it's effective, but do you know? Has the question been asked? And much of this is not rocket science. Uh, to find out if ethics training has been effective, one of the indicators would be to simply ask your employees if they felt they learned anything from it. Uh, and was that training leveraged by first-line managers to discuss how to apply it to more day-to-day -day business decisions? So I think that is what the Benskowski memo is trying to get at, a more fulsome, real, and tested compliance program uh, that would give the government more confidence that they don't need an independent monitor to verify compliance with the deferred prosecution agreement. 
Well, you know, I, I think a key measure of a, do you have an effective program, especially after an incident, have you done something to change the culture? And, you know, in, inside the memo, there is a call for prosecutors to assess where there's been a change of culture. The thing that I, I think is a good goal, the question I have is, are prosecutors really equipped to do that? It's outside of their normal roles. Do we have indication on how that will be done? And, you know, for example, are companies going to be expected to field surveys or other techniques that are going to be used? No, I, you know, I think you're, you're right. I mean, the prosecutors really don't have the skill sets to ask that question. And that is where they often have relied upon the independent monitor to come in and uh, help to make those determinations about the strength of the corporate ethical culture. Uh, prosecutors can't do that, and they don't really understand it uh, based on, on my experience. And this is not just a DOJ phenomenon. This is a phenomenon for all regulators that I've dealt with in a monitoring situation that that they don't know what a strong corporate culture might look like. Um, they know uh, intrinsically that corporate culture is important. Now, what I try to explain to them is that culture, in my view, is a foundational internal control. And without that control, the other controls are not going to work. In other words, people need to uh, want to comply and feel that they're compelled to comply in order for them to comply with the rules. And so somebody who understands culture, who is on the ground, who has their hands on the company, needs to be able to identify some of those indicators of a strong culture and red flags of a potentially uh, weak culture. So let me close um, because we're starting to run out of time. There's a lot of good in the memo, you know, including the call to have a compliance program based on risks and looking at culture as well. And most companies love any chance not to have a monitor. That's not personally directed at you. It's just at the institution. <laughs> um, but let me play devil's advocate here. You know, there's a potential risk that the company would greatly enhance the compliance program during the period, you know, after discovering the incident while the DOJ is looking. And then once the settlement is done, cut the compliance program. Now, they can do that when a monitor ship ends, but given it's, monitorships tend to be lengthy and fairly entrenched, it's likely harder. Um, do you think that's a real risk or not with this new world since the Benskowski memo? Yeah, it's always going to be a risk, Adam. Um, you know, and, and we've seen this with repeat offenders. There are multiple companies that you would have thought that after the initial deferred prosecution agreement um, and a monitor that they would have learned, and then yet they come back, uh, you know, to the um, the fraud buffet uh, for another helping, uh, some two or three times. And so, yeah, I, I think that having a monitor is going to help uh, to entrench some of these changes in a more meaningful way uh, than just throwing some money at a program and saying, look at us, we've met the terms of the Benskowski memo, and we've done all these things, we don't need a monitor. Which is uh, why, you know, I've been pushing this concept of a proactive uh, monitorship, 
which would mean don't just rely on the company itself to make these changes, but bring in an independent third party to do an assessment of the program and the culture to provide a roadmap and make changes based on that roadmap. Now, that's not going to prevent a company from then retrenching and pulling its money and its structure back. But if you have that roadmap in writing and the company shares that independent assessment with the government as a way to get out of having a monitor, then the prosecutors are in much better shape to ask very specific questions based on that independent assessment that's been done about where they are um, a couple years down the road during the period of the DPA. That helps a little bit more than just relying on the uh, independent actions of a company. Well, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how this evolves um, and to see you know what impact it has on compliance and ethics programs, both those you know going through troubles and those looking to learn from them. Well, Eric, thanks for taking the time to share your insights on this. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaub from SCCE and HCCA saying, I hope we were able to expand your compliance perspective.